the Q ratio, average convergence, divergence, basis points, and BS. Financial shows love to sound smart, but on Money Matters, we want to make you smart. That's why the goal is to keep you informed and empowered. Our focus, providing clear, actionable information without the financial jargon to help 1 million families retire sooner and happier. Based on the long-running WSB radio show, this Money Matters podcast is tailor-made for both modern retirees and those still in the planning stages. Join us in this exciting new chapter and let's journey toward a financially secure and joyful retirement together. We're covering real estate here today. We're gonna talk about housing prices. The Fed met on Wednesday, which was also the last day of January. We'll do some January recap numbers. Elon Musk just continues to make headlines, whether it's his 50 plus billion dollar pay package that just got shot down in a Delaware court, which was a really a fascinating story, only to be topped by his new company, Neuralink, or Neuralink, that is now implanting semiconductors and chips into people's brains. Yeah, I can't be outdone. One story is going to lead to another story, as Jeff Lloyd calls it. What do we call the Musk stuff? Oh, we call it here on Money Matters, Musk CTV. Because it's exactly what it is. It just keeps getting better. And more interesting, Walmart did a good old-fashioned stock split or announced one. We haven't <laughs> what's a stock? When was the last time that happened? Used to be earlier in my career, go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, they were stock splits are happening all the time. And then they've they've became they've become virtually extinct. It's like an endangered species. Wait a minute. A stock split spotting this week from none other than Walmart. So we'll cover that. And then dividend and long-term long capital gains uh, when it comes to taxes. And here we are in tax season. So this week officially started tax season. By the way, welcome Jeff Lloyd. I just brought you without introducing you. Jeff Lloyd here in the studio. No, thanks for having me back, Wes. I know, I know it was a rough Sunday last Sunday with the Lions losing. Brutal. But as you described, you're a multi-fan. I'm a multi-fan. So even though the Lions lost, your Michigan Wolverines still won a couple weeks ago. So Can't at have least it all you got one, one championship under your belt. Can't have it all in one season. But I, I'm I have no allegiance to either team that's in the Super Bowl. So I I don't. I, it'll it'll be great to watch it. I guess Usher is going to do the halftime show. Kind of mixed on that one, but either way, it, it's I, we're going to all watch the Super Bowl. I think I don't know how many hundreds of millions of people. Is he going to have any special musical guest at the halftime show? I don't know if there are going to be any other musicians oh, in, in the attendance yeah. at the crowd. I don't, we don't know I, well, for sure. Of course, it's but Taylor maybe. Swift. I really like the idea of the Lions represented by Eminem. He's their musician versus the Chiefs with Taylor Swift. So it would have been pretty cool TV to see. It's kind of, it would have been Eminem versus Taylor Swift, which is a ridiculous matchup, but I thought it would have been great for, great for ratings. Not that it needs it. So uh, I, I, in my family, Eminem is a big deal, not Taylor Swift. I've all boys. Weed. I don't even, I don't know one Taylor Swift song, Jeff Lloyd. I know you have producer Mallory's crying over there. Yeah, How could you say that? She's just so, throwing you a thumbs down over there. So into Taylor Swift. But yes, I have a 13-year-old daughter. We actually have been to a Taylor Swift concert right. back right. about six years ago on the Reputation Tour. We have not been 
on the latest tour, Aries. which apparently she's going to be in Japan a night or two before the Super Bowl. So there's questions of oh, whether she's going to She's going to fly private. She'll sleep the whole time. She'll be there but game time. She'll be more well-rested than anybody. Well, I can't wait to see it. Let's start with this. Uh, well into adulthood and still getting money from their parents. I've written about this. This was, I, I have a chapter in the, I think the family habits section of you can retire in what the happiest retirees know that talks about the relationship between parents and their adult children and how happy versus unhappy retirees are participating in their children's finances, their adult children finances. So I've always been interested in this topic. And this is a, a new study that's come out from Pew Research and was just published in the Wall Street Journal this past week. 59% of parents said they helped their young adult children financially in the past year. 50, almost 60% of, of parents are helping their adult children. More, uh, more young adults living at home, adults under the age of 25, 57% live with their parents, up from 53% back in 1993. So it's not that shocking as we get older and older. We look at college football and you see football players that are 25 years old, they're still playing college football. So, it's, so to, to some extent, we've elongated when we fully leave the nest. So that doesn't surprise me as much. It really doesn't surprise me as much if you kind of think about the affordability of houses right now and what we've kind of seen in the booming housing prices over the past couple of years. Why don't you bring up some housing data while I give some other statistics here? Because I think you're dead on when it comes to that. It's just it's unaffordable. It's, it's a great time to be a homeowner. For a variety of reasons, it's a real because prices are high. So if you wanted to sell your house, you can probably get the the you're probably close to a all time high point depending on where you live, and you're probably also locked in a really low mortgage rate. And we all have those statistics as Jeff Lloyd is digging through the numbers. But at the same time, if you are not a homeowner and you've got student debt and mortgage rates are now higher, it's a really tough time to be buying a house. Home affordability is very, very difficult right now for Americans. Here's an example, though. So this is, again, this is a Wall Street Journal article. They chronicled a 33-year-old physical therapist named Heather McAfee from Austin, Texas. She lived at home from 19, or from 19, from 2019 to 2021, so for three years, so that she could help pay down her student loans. She had $83,000 in student loans. The plan worked. She lived with mom and dad for three years, down to $15,000. So it was a really big help. And that's a very practical way to do it. I remember when I was right out of college, it was still, only one of my friends did this, I remember, from UNC. And I remember he went home to New York and lived with his parents. And I thought that was wild. I thought it was crazy that he would ever do that. And he was the only one of out of our friend group that lived with his parents. And and to some extent, he was a little more set up for it because he was a consultant and he traveled every single week and he would go to a particular location on you know, Sunday night and not get home till Friday. So it kind of made sense to not even go get a, an apartment right out of school. However, I looked at that at that time, 25 plus years ago, as kind of nuts. Today, I think, well, that makes total sense. I, I would encourage my kids to do that. So, and then here are some statistics around the impact. So here, here, this is the share of parents who live with their young adult children say that living with them has had an impact on, one, their own personal financial situation, 
not all that bad. So only 15, 18% of people, again, uh, parents said it was tough on them financially, but it's almost 20%. And then their relationship with their child. This was interesting to me and a little bit different from the research that that I've conducted over the years. But 74% of parents said it has a, had a positive relationship with their kids, which I think that's all, that is wonderful. 21% neutral, only 5% said it had a negative impact. So I think that that makes a, I love that statistic that it brings parents and their kids closer. And it's a, it's a good time too. When you're 21, I just remember when I was in my early twenties, I finally became, it, you start to become an adult. You start to get along with your parents better. And in the world we live in today where it's less, I'd say less of a stigma to be 22 and still live with your parents. I think it could be a fun time as you're you're grown up, your parents are grown up, you get along in a different way. So I, I love that statistic. No, that's a positive statistic. I mean, think about it. If you combine that 74 and 21, 95% are having as good of a relationship or a better relationship with their parents or you, and child. You so. always look that you are glass half full yeah. all the time, Jeff. Floyd. Yeah. You know, if, awesome. if we get the weather report, <laughs> if there's a 95% chance of rain, what do you I, say? Don't, I say there's a 5% chance of sun. Okay. <laughs> so great. The relationship with, so here you go. Now this is on the young adults that live at home. So the share young adults who live at home with a parent who say living with their parents has had an impact on the their personal financial situation. 64% said it was positive, which makes total sense. 25% neutral, but only 10% said it was negative. So it's it looks to me as, as really this relationship has works out for both parties. The only place you see a, a negative is in the sense of independence. And this of course makes sense. About a third of young adults who live with their parents say it does, it has been negative for their sense of independence. At some point we got to get out of the nest and live on our own financially. And that's what parents want. Parents want independent children. No matter what research you read, and this is research that I've done over the years, if you go back to Thomas Stanley and Bill Danko's research in The Millionaire Next Door, we we aspire as parents, and I guess I can say this now that I am a parent, we just want our kids to be fully functioning, independent adults that we do not have to support. We don't, I'm fine to support them, I just don't want to have, I don't want them to be in a position where they need to be supported when they're 35 years old. Yeah, it's like the birds in the nest. You know, mother bird wants to support the baby birds, but she wants to see them fly and leave the nest. They've got right? to be able to find worms on their own. All right. So here's the next big story of this past week, of course, is the Fed. I don't know if you've pulled housing data yet. But this relates back to housing data because it's, it really has to do with mortgages. What the Fed does with their manual levers, if you will, wags the tail of the entire bond market. So they control these really short-term interest rates. They can do that manually, if you will. They can pull the levers to change rates higher or lower. And then that, almost like a bullwhip, changes the entire yield curve of one-year and two-year and five-year and 10-year and 30-year bonds. It moves the entire bond market. And we've we saw that a little bit this past week, but the Federal Reserve's they're, they're not quite ready to lower rates. That's what we're seeing from Jerome Powell and Company. The market has been expecting that potentially as soon as March you'd see rates start to come down. At least the Fed, the, what the Fed can control. 
Powell didn't, he didn't intimate that there was anything wrong. And, and similar to what we talked about last week, we call this the super Goldilocks economy because we have low inflation and yet we have strong GDP. We've got the, we have two really positive things happening at the same time. In fact, their preferred measure, there's two inflation measures. You've got CPI that gets a little more press, consumer price index, and then you've got PCE, which that's the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, but it doesn't get talked about. I think if you went and asked 10 people what CPI was, most people would say, oh, that's consumer price index. I bet you it'd be one or two out of 10 that know what PCE is, which is personal consumption expenditures. That it's almost, it's hard to understand. It's, it's poorly named to understand that it's an inflation number. We're talking about housing, Jeff Lloyd. Number one on the list, do you have this heat map? The heat map, number one. For a one-year gain in housing prices, number one on the list, Number we'll go top three. Number three on the list, New York up 7.4%. San Diego up 8.1%. And I have to think that part of that is because there was a correction in, in some of these cities and maybe they've recovered. And then number one on the list, Detroit, over the past year. Now, if you go over the past 10 years, it's trounced by a lot of cities. It's only up 94% over the past decade. Whereas you see a city like Tampa is up 148%. A city like Seattle, even though has now has recently been more flat, up 131% over the past decade or so. You would, th and where are we on the Atlanta? So Atlanta, here we are in the city of Atlanta, up 6% year over year. Over the past 10 years, up 112%. Yeah, and according to the data, Atlanta home prices hit a new all-time high this so past Good month. for home owners, a little rough for home buyers. Now, what wags the tail of interest or of mortgage rates? We know that it's the Fed. They can manually move interest rates. That impacts the 10-year treasury bond yield. And then that really is where mortgage rates are coming on for the most part. They 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 play off of where the they were usually a little couple points higher than where the ten year treasury is. We hit a high of what was the, what was the, the thirty year mortgage rate high back in like the October November of last year. We got in kind of the seven six seven seven range, almost eight percent, almost for almost average thirty year fix, and now we're down to six point seven percent. So it's come down about a full percentage point. But the Federal Reserve is not going to lower rates. And this is what they said this week. They First of all, they said the data is good. Inflation has come down. The economy is strong. And the numbers are good. But we want to see the numbers stay good for a while. And with their elevated rates, that they're, they're still elevated, at five and a quarter to five and a half percent, that's the federal funds rate, before they start to lower interest rates. They still want to see a little bit of progress on inflation. Now, we know that CPI... Again, we're getting close. CPI is as it stands right now. That's the consumer price index. Stands at about 3.4%. PCE, personal consumption, ex personal consumption expenditures, it's another inflation measure, is only up 2.6% over the past year. Here's the difference between the two. To measure airline ticket inflation, as an example, CPI is going to measure a fixed basket of airline ticket routes and what they're purported to cost. That's what CPI is measuring. Makes sense. But PCE, personal consumption expenditures, measures what consumers are spending on airline tickets. They're looking at airline revenue, actual dollars spent. That's why supposedly the Fed likes this PCE number better. 
as an inflation measure because it's it's less hypothetical and it's more a measure of how inflation is impacting real world consumers. And that number is even lower than the CPI number. It's in the, and depending on if you look at with or without food and energy, call it 2.9, 2.6, depending on which way we're measuring. But PCE getting really darn close to the to the to what the Fed's really looking for. More money matters straight ahead. Thinking about retirement in 2024? Well, you're not alone, and I've got just the thing to help guide you on your journey. What the happiest retirees know. My most recent book that shares the 10 habits of the happiest retirees. Meant to help you land at a place where work becomes optional. For a limited time, get 25% off at westmossbooks.com. Simply use the promo code OURTREAT, all one word, at checkout. That's westmossbooks.com. Seven social security lessons learned from none other than the coolest social security lady I've ever met by far. She's full-time social security, at least she was for her living. Mary Beth Franklin. She's just the, she's the great explainer of social security. It's such a complicated topic. It's so important for people to get right. It's a huge chunk of income, even if you have plenty of money, and nobody does it better than Mary Beth Franklin. She just makes it so easy to digest and understand. We recorded a podcast with her for the Retire Sooner podcast. Of course, you can find that on Apple or wherever you find podcasts, but it's called the Retire Sooner podcast that we've hosted now for a couple of years. And we just had Mary Beth Franklin back on to talk about Social Security, simplifying it. How do you really, we probably should have titled it, how do you optimize social security? Because we know how to maximize it. You, you wait as long as you can. It's really about optimizing social security. And that's what she talked about. The, it, anywhere from number one on my list is, where'd that color statement go? Remember you used to get the green, white and green statement with black letters? Now it's got color. You got to log in to get it. But we talk about when you get that, how to get it. What, will benefits be there? long into the future, what could change around Social Security, how Social Security funded, how much do we, how much of our income do we pay on the Social Security tax? Here's just a, this is the new number for 2024. It's $168,600. So the first $168,600 we make, uh, that's up from a little over one sixty from from last year. That's what we pay our Social Security taxes on. That's the, that's the FICA amount that we pay which even if you make if you make 500 a year you're still only paying social security tax on 168,600 the door has closed on some old rules here as we have started now in 2024 and then what about the working penalty these are all things we cover from Mary Beth Franklin but she's great and and we we, had, we really love the podcast that we did with her and you can find it it's on the retire sooner podcast now, with that, we've already talked about the Fed this week, Jeff Lloyd, and I get super important news, PCE, which is an inflation measure that they really care about, is now just slightly sub, sub 3%. So it's in the twos, depending on which PCE measure we look at. It's PCE is, a, is preferred by the Fed because it measures the prices, people, not the price that's listed that you see in the store, if you will, but actual spending on, let's call it any item that they're they're measuring, 
that gives us an idea of what what the consumer is spending and how much more they're spending on the same thing they did last year. And that's where we get this inflation number, PCE. It's getting pretty close. Fed thinks the data is good. They just want it to stay good for a while before they start lowering interest rates, which should be welcome to anybody thinking about buying a house. Yeah, it doesn't look like they're going to they, – they left the door open for maybe a March – cut but doesn't seem very likely it seems more likely that that cut could come in may sure and and i know that and the market looks at it that way too and there's fed fund futures and there's there's odds on how many cuts and when the cuts come here's the reality is that the fed is data dependent and i take i really believe that i i hear that get poo-pooed on financial television all the time well they're are they really data dependent yeah they 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 are looking at new economic data that comes in every single day up until they meet. And if we had gotten a, a, a really low inflation print that was even lower than, let's say, the, the 2% handle that we had, maybe they would have cut. So it really is what's happening in the economy, what the numbers look like, and they're going to adjust, adjust accordingly. What's maybe even more interesting than the Fed? I would say Social Security, and that is a <laughs> wonderful benefit that – impacts a lot of Americans, a majority of Americans. But I want to talk about another benefit that was in the news this week, and that was Elon Musk's 50 plus 51, <laughs> $56 billion pay package <laughs> well, from Tesla. It would have been a benefit. Uh, it would have been a benefit, but it was struck down by the court. So this was an this is the overall pay package for Elon Musk. So this is a Here's the headline from this. This is, and again, Jeff Lloyd, you call this Musk CTV. He had a pay package that was reportedly $56 billion. That's for a, that, that would have been a one-year bonus is essentially that's, what that's, that was. Yeah, and a payment going to one person. One person getting a $56 billion, not million, $56 billion number. Delaware judge on Tuesday ruled in favor of the investors who challenged Elon Musk on that and his pay package. So the, and this was a court filing, it was in Delaware court. The 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 judge found that Musk's compensation was not I don't think it was that it was too high even though it's that's a hard number to wrap your head around it, is that it was inappropriately set. So the board by the board of Tesla and that's why they struck down the pay package. And I've heard plenty of reaction to this. By the way, his his post was all, all his post said after this was never incorporate your company in the state of Delaware. <laughs> That's all. Yeah, let's, let's go straight to X. The company he owns never incorporate your company in the state of Delaware. The, the, hundreds of the world's finest companies are domiciled in the state of Delaware. So he's, he's obviously just mad at a, at a Delaware uh, ruling here, but he's not going to get the pay package evidently. And I'm not going to even go into it. It was just, they argued that it was inappropriately said, they were never the board never thought that they could ever even come close to the parameters to get there and that's why they challenged it but that's not as interesting as this the 56 billion dollars was Mallory, producer Mallory in the booth over there doing the mind blown emoji in real life is hard to understand because again this is just a this would be a bonus to somebody to think a 5 billion dollar bonus is a it's a giant bonus Imagine, though, you hear a $50 million bonus. You think, oh, I, that's a crazy somebody would get $50 million. But nobody's ever, you don't get a billion-dollar bonus. There's no billion-dollar bonuses. 
Now, maybe if you own a big hedge fund and it's a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, it goes up a lot and you could make a billion in a year, maybe. Instead, this was 56 billion. So it's a billion times 56 times <laughs> to one to one person. And that's I, I guess that's why there was so much outrage about it. But that number in itself is bigger than the company itself of 3M. It's bigger than the railroad companies, Norfolk Southern. It's bigger than Truist. It's bigger than Aflac. It's, that's how much this payment would have been. These are bigger than giant companies that are part of the S&P 500. It's bigger than Ford Motor Company. Is that, wait, is that what you said here, Jeff? Is it really bigger than Ford Motor Company? It's bigger than Ford. It's bigger than General Motors. So entire car companies would be, their market cap would be smaller than the pay package of 56 billion. I see billion. what you did here. It's that clever be- because Tesla, it's a, I see what you did. Clever. Car company to car company. His bonus at Tesla bigger than his competitors in itself. Anyway, it's not happening. Let's go to something else. Good old fashioned. When was the last time we talked about a stock split? I can't remember talking about a stock split Long on, on Money Matters. If you own Walmart, remember, we're, when we talk about these companies, we're talking about the companies themselves. Here, we're talking about a stock. We're not recommending you go buy or sell it at all. We just, we're talking about the, we're, we're edu- we want to educate around what it potentially could mean because any company can do a stock split. They can do a regular stock split. They can do a reverse stock split. And it's been such a long period of time. What the heck is this? It's, it's like a, it's the dodo bird showing up there. I thought these were extinct. If you look at a chart and I got this from, from Barron's, the, if you go back to the late nineties and the early two thousands, it was not uncommon to get 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 companies a year were, were doing stock splits. Happened, think about this. Happened, you would have a couple every single week. I think it was a peak in maybe 19, in, in the year 2000, there were almost 100 stock splits in just that one year. Then over the course of time, they became less and less and less and less popular. And now you you barely ever hear about a stock split. You maybe maybe get a dozen or so in in a given year. Maybe that trend will start to reverse here in 2024. But essentially, they did this, Jeff. And you spent a little bit of time on this, which is they really felt it was good for their associates and their employees. How how many people work at Walmart? Worldwide, it's about 2.1 million. 2.1 million, million people work for Walmart. And in the uh, in the U.S., it's like 1.6 in the U.S. So I th- they are the uh, largest private employer in the U.S. Walmart is. So you have so you have, and then you have 400,000 Walmart associates that participate in the Walmart Associate Stock Purchase Plan today. About 400,000 employees are doing that, and. The reality here is that, and this goes all the way back to Sam Walton. I don't know where you got this, but Sam Walton believed it was important to keep the share price in a range where purchasing whole shares rather than fractions is accessible. So this is what happens when when you, and, and on the surface, it shouldn't really matter to investors because I guess a simple example, let's just say a two for one stock split and Walmart is three for one. But if you think of it this way, you own 100 shares of company X. We're not talking about Twitter here. But you have, you have a 100 shares of company X. It's priced at 100 bucks a share. That means you're, it's valued today at $10,000. Now they do a two-for-one stock split. Now you 
you have two shares for one. So now you have 200 shares, but the price falls in half. So you have the exact same value, if you will, in those shares. So now your 100 goes to 200, the price goes from 100 bucks down to 50, and your investment's still worth 200 bucks. But you have more of a lower price share. And if you think about it, you're doing dividend reinvest, and maybe, or you're doing a stock purchase plan, and you're only able to put in a few dollars or 50 or 100 bucks, it starts to make buying a full share that much easier. So we can also think of it, so a stock split is like ordering a large pizza. In, in the case of Walmart, so normal pizza, let's say it's got eight slices. But instead, you say, I want a large pizza, but I want 24 slices. So you, it's the same exact pizza. It's the same exact size. It's just there are 24 pieces as a 24 smaller pieces relative to eight larger pieces. And that's really what a stock split is all about. And that's what's happening with Walmart. But what's an example if you didn't have a stock split, what would give us an example, Jeff Floyd, of what could happen? Yes, yeah, so I thought Apple would be a good example to use. And they IPO'd back in 1980, and they've had a couple of stock splits since then. I think they've had five in total. And had the company not ever done a stock split, the. Well, hold on. So the price, let's the, call it this week. Let's, as, let's call it 186. As of the, like, yep. mid, mid 180s, right? If Apple per share, if you, to, per it, share, to, okay. But what if it had never split over the years? If it had never split, the cost of a share would be just over forty one thousand six hundred dollars per share. All right. So, and and what you're doing then is taking the market, the total size of the company, the market capitalization, and, and readjusting for what the shares were when it first started. Yeah, when adjusting they first for IPA. like share repurchases and and things like that. And, and that's a really good example of why it could be really inaccessible to, if you don't have stock if you don't have stock splits. Imagine you're saying I'm going to take some money out of every paycheck. Maybe it's fifty bucks, and I'm going to buy Apple shares with it. Well, you're never going to buy a share, or you would just buy these tiny, tiny fractions until you get to forty one thousand dollars. And that's the that's that's the reason why companies can do this and make it a little more accessible. We're not saying go out, run out and buy these stocks we're talking about. Really, this is a conversation around stock splits. They don't change the value. They don't materially good or bad, but they do make the price a little more accessible if you do, if you do so. Yeah. Stock splits, I like to say, you know, kind of helps you be able to take a bite out of the apple. What else happened so far to start out this year? Volatility's picked up a little bit. The VIX is up 15%. Crude oil up about five or six percent. We had, let's see, the bond index was relatively flat, down just a fraction of a percent. Gold down about one percent. It's interesting that the VIX picked up, which is the volatility index, but relatively benign month for markets. Not a ton of movement in either direction. The Magnificent Seven, which is the, those are the the companies that really ruled the day in 2023. These are the these happen to be the biggest companies in America for the most part. And because the S&P 500 is market cap weighted, they have a very large impact on how the market does. We had a lot of, most of last year, we were looking at the market and we had a scenario where even though the market may have been up at any given time, let's say up 10%, we... It was because just those seven stocks had done so well, and the other 493 were 
on average down, yet the market was up 10% because the Magnificent Seven were up so much, 50, 60, 70, 100% in some cases. Those companies, how are they doing now? Or how did they do at least for January? Still some pretty good momentum. NVIDIA was up 24%, Meta was up 10, Microsoft up almost six, Amazon up two. But then we saw Apple negative on the month and Tesla, Tesla was down 24%. For the month of January. So that's a not so magnificent rate of return. Not saying let's go run out and buy or sell the Magnificent Seven at all, but maybe a little less carrying the market when it comes to just a handful of companies. And we did see a broader, what I, I noticed throughout the month on a, any given day when the market was up, it wasn't just tech driving. It was much broader. So I'd see these, let's call it large cap dividend companies that are just large. They're not mega, mega cap. So in the world we live in now, we have trillion dollar companies. Used to be a hundred billion dollar company was really big. Today, that's not even that big relative to some of these massive technology companies. We know Microsoft is over $3 trillion. We know Apple is over $3 trillion. So they're both flirting with that level. And we may see more of these trillion dollar companies. But I've noticed so far this month is that when the market, we have a decent day in the market, it doesn't, it's not as though the rest of the 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 also rans or the guy, the the bench players, if you will, because they're only a hundred billion hundred billion dollar company, they've participated as well. So some broadening out of the market so far in 2023. Speaking of some of these big companies like Google and or Alphabet and Microsoft, it's funny to look at or it's interesting to look at the, the their revenue and how it's grown over the years. And you look at a company that's a $3 trillion company and you think, how can how can that even be possible in this world? And it's because they continue to grow their revenue year after year after year. And it's really supported that. And of course, it, revenue can translate into profits. And that's, that's how we get to multi-trillion dollar companies. You go back to 1996, Microsoft did $9 billion. Still, it's at a huge amount of revenue. That was back in 1996. Let's fast forward to 2006, $46 billion in revenue. Let's go to 2016, $95 billion in revenue. This is, this is, this is the amount of money they're bringing in in revenue, selling software, doing the now and again, do the cloud. Now they're, of course participating heavily in artificial intelligence. Then you go to 2023, as of last year, did about $228 billion in revenues. I mean, <laughs> yes, these companies are massive and they have trillion dollar market cap caps, but they're doing hundreds of billions of dollars of sales. So that's, it's, you don't just accidentally get to a trillion dollar market cap. These are companies that have supported to, to now you can make an argument that some of these companies are pricey and they're trading at high multiples relative to what they're earning, but it's not as though that their revenue hasn't been just eye popping as well, along with this journey to become, go from large cap to mega cap to ultra mega cap in a lot of these cases. Alphabet is another, just another one. Again, go back to 2003, Alphabet did 1.5 billion in revenue. 2013 did 56 billion dollars in revenue, and in 2023 did over 300 billion dollars in revenue. That is 
Alphabet. So these are companies that are operating on many cylinders. Well, that's the Army of American Productivity, is it not? Jeff Lloyd, the Army of American Productivity. More money matters straight ahead. We spent a lot of time thinking about and wanting to articulate, I think, the importance of different tax rates that gets some short shrift, meaning that there's a huge difference, Jeff Lloyd, between the ordinary income tax bracket. So when you think to yourself, I make X amount and I pay about this, and almost a lot of Americans will just kind of default to saying, I think I pay 20 or 30% in taxes, and they're usually not all that wrong. Sometimes they're thinking more about their bracket versus their overall effective rate, but there is a very big difference between our ordinary income that gets taxed at a certain level, and those, those brackets get higher faster and go up more to a much higher level than the taxes we would pay for long-term capital gains. And, and what's, again, rarely ever gets talked about, and the income you receive from dividends, qualified dividends. Think about any, any big S&P 500 company, most of them that pay a dividend, those are qualified dividends. So they have their own special tax rate. And today we wanted to highlight what that means. And this came from, we were looking on Twitter slash X and we read a tweet, we read a post that said, did you know, and by the way, I'm not a CPA, I'm not operating here as a CPA, even though we're in tax season here, this is very, we're, we have to always generalize anything that deals with the taxes from investments. So your own personal situation may be different. There's all these other variables. You always have to check with your CPA before saying, oh, this applies to me. But this is an example, and this is, came from Axe. It was, I don't know who, who was it? This is the dividend investor, I think, that posted this. And the, and the post was this. Did you know that if you make $124,000 in 2024, your dividend tax rate will likely, and I like that they use the word likely, be zero? What? You don't associate making $124,000 a year with zero tax rate. How could that possibly be? It's because the dividend tax rate and the long-term capital tax, long-term capital gains. Again, if we hold an asset for longer than a year, we're going to we're going to get to and we sell it, then we're going to get to pay long-term capital gains. Those two rates, those two brackets, are are really they're virtually the same. I would say that there's there may be some sort of nuanced difference, but if you look up the two brackets for 2024 dividend, here are the income levels you get to for different capital gain rates. They're very, very similar or the same as dividend tax rates. And they are zero, they are 15, and they are 20. Now, I'm not talking about the, there is an additional 3.8% net investment income tax, but essentially long-term capital gains and dividend rates are their own brackets. And they're, here they are, zero, yes, zero, 15% and 20%, depending on where your income is. I went and pulled the 2024 tax brackets for the ordinary income, and then the tax brackets for dividends and the tax brackets for income. I'll try to not get too mired down in the weeds here, but here are just some examples. I'm just using this. All, all of these are married filing jointly. So this is if you're married filing jointly. If your income is, call it $90,000, as I'm looking at this tax bracket right here, the 12% the bracket, by the way, for married filing jointly, 
is about $23,000 up to $94,000, $94,300. That entire zone, if you will, is in the 12% tax bracket. So if your income is $90,000, you're in the 12% federal bracket. But guess what? You're in the 0% long-term capital gain bracket and the 0% dividend bracket. And that's important. Another example, if your income is $500,000, you're in the 35% federal tax bracket. High earner, high bracket. By the way, the federal brackets go all the way up to 37%. That's the highest federal tax bracket right now. You're, you're in the 35% you would pay on ordinary income, but you're only in the 15% dividend and long-term capital gain tax bracket. Huge difference. 35 versus 15 and if your income is $750,000 and you're in the third, you're, that puts you in the highest bracket. That starts it again, married, finally, it starts at 731,000, just a little more than that. So if you make it seven, if, you, if your income is 750,000, you're in the 37% ordinary income bracket, but only 20% for dividends, qualified dividends, and long term capital gain. Again, I'm not adding in the net that. Extra 3.8%, which is net investment income tax. And this is just for illustration purposes only. One of the reasons we don't talk about taxes a lot here is that there are so many exceptions to it. So when you're listening, you're, you're, you're thinking about taxes, there's always somebody that'll call in and say, well, this doesn't count, or you said this and it's different. So just remember, we're really just generalizing here. And it could be a little bit different for, for everybody uh, and this is not tax advice, but this is what we do need to think about when it comes to investing to to optimize what our bracket might be in the future so that we get to keep more of what we're earning. But the the dividend, this is a this is from X or Twitter, the dividend growth investor this week, and this is what started this whole conversation. On the surface, we were we, Jeff, you and I were both like, wait, 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 what? This this doesn't make sense. Dividends are not taxable in 2024 for married couples whose total taxable income is less than 123,250 this year. What? How could that be? Well, first of all, what they're doing is they're taking that number, 123,250, and they're using the standard deduction for a married couple, which is 29,200. So really what you you arrive at is 94,050 bucks. And then you go over and you find that if you're looking at the capital gain tax table, which is also the dividend tax table, guess what? 15% tax rate, if that's where your income lands. 94,051, this is for married, filing jointly, all the way up to 583,000. 583,000, you're in that 15% tax bracket when it comes to long-term capital gains and when it comes to qualified dividends. Now, there is a handy tax calculator through, which I've grown to really like this site, Jeff Lloyd, Nerd Wallet. I really like Nerd Wallet. They, they have really good articles. They're very clear. They have good calculators. And we don't get any kickbacks from Nerd Wallet, but I will say that it's a helpful website. It really is. And now they have a 2023 capital gain tax calculator. So it's not, this is not going to be perfect. But the other thing I think that is important is that it, it shows us that capital gains and dividend taxes are essentially a progressive tax. 
Meaning that because you have these different, you have these different tiers, you have at zero, you have 15, you have 20%. It's not necessarily as if you're a, as, as soon as you clip over into that 15 bracket, it's not as if all your dividends or all your tap, capital gains all of a sudden in the 15, it's progressive. So the calculator will show you that. And it doesn't even take into account the standard deduction here. But if you were to enter in that you had 50,000 in capital gains and 60,000 in income, so your total income was 110, the long-term capital gain, married filing jointly, it shows you that part of your long-term gain is taxed at zero and part of it is taxed at 15%. And that's the key here. So you end up with this blend. And this is as an example on the calculator. Keep in mind, this is just, this is still their 23 version. It's not taking into account the standard deduction. So it's not fully accurate, but it gets the picture because what you're, what it's showing here is that the estimated capital gain tax is about a little over three grand, 3,000 on 50. 3,000 on 50,000. That's a that's about a 6% rate. It's because part of it is in the zero and part of it is in the 15. It's a blended tax rate or a, you, we could call that a progressive tax rate, but the brackets are a heck of a lot lower. It's something that gets overlooked in retirement planning. It doesn't get taught. We, we haven't talked about it for a long time, but we talk about the steadiness of dividends. We talk about how dividends grow over time, or at least the, the market in general. We've seen dividend growth year after year. And by the way, the growth, the dividend growth rate we've seen to be double or triple the rate of inflation, depending on what time period you look at. What, what's interesting about it, though, is that we, we go through our working years and we start adding up all the taxes. And let's say you're in your highest earning years in, in your head or on paper, you're paying 30, 35% in taxes. The good news is when you get into retirement, and Warren Buffett is famous for saying this, is that he pays low a lower tax rate than somebody who works for him, an administrative person that works for him that maybe makes $300,000. Because that person is paying and they're subject to their ordinary income brackets. Warren Buffett's only subject, because this is the way he sets it up, to pay taxes on dividends. And those are preferential for the most part relative to ordinary income. And it's important. And it's a big part of why it's not just the dividends grow and outpace inflation and are rel a very steady piece of the overall equation or can be, is that they're pretty, pretty efficient when it comes to taxes relative to some of the other ways you can generate income when you get into retirement. And it's not a it's not just about how much money we have in retirement. It's about how much money we were able to generate and then how much we're able to keep after taxes. And, and if, we're th if we're smart about it, we're really thinking about it in our retirement planning, dividends really could play part of that role. So thank you, Jeff, for bringing that up today. And I know we, we did a lot going through that. Yeah, a lot of detail on that, but I think it's just a good was example. Was that the most boring money <clears throat> no, matter no, no. segment of all time? I think it was. <laughs> but, but it's just a comprehensive look at finances and taxes and factoring both those into a financial plan and strategy. May have been one of the most boring and hard to follow, but I think it may be one of the more important segments we've done in a long time. Again, think of this as general advice. I'm not a CPA. I'm not saying... This is exactly how it will be on your taxes. Just some general ways to think about taxes on your investments, 
when you're planning for retirement, which is what we want to help you do right here on Money Matters. You can find me and Jeff Lloyd and the Money Matters team. It's easy to do so throughout the week. We're at yourwealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R, yourwealth.com. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This is provided as a resource for informational purposes and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. The mention of any company is provided to you for informational purposes and as an example only and is not to be considered investment advice or recommendation or an endorsement of any particular company. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. There is no guarantee offered that investment return, yield, or performance will be achieved. The information provided is strictly an opinion and for informational purposes only, and it is not known whether the strategies will be successful. There are many aspects and criteria that must be examined and considered before investing. This information is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment, tax, estate, or financial plan considerations or decisions. Investment decisions should not be made solely based on information contained herein.